Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The hypocrites agitating for a boycott of the Winter Olympics in China are the same people currently frenzying online and on BBC Radio, because I just heard them, about the Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia. That's a country that cuts people's heads off on a Friday afternoon in the street, in public. It's a country that crucifies teenage boys. Yes, crucifies teenage boys. It's a country whose effective ruler not only murdered Jamal Khashoggi, the columnist on the Washington Post newspaper, but cut him into tiny pieces with a bone saw brought for the purpose and a bone saw air brought in for the purpose and flushed those pieces down the drains of Istanbul. This is a country where there has never been an election of any kind. This is a country to whom we sell deadly weapons so they can massacre people next door in the poorest country in the Arab world, namely in Yemen. This is a country where human rights simply don't exist, where women's rights simply don't exist. But the entire Grand Prix fraternity are all there having a will of a time, ignoring the blood on the tracks. But the hypocrites are not just guilty of double standards when it comes to sporting occasions. The hypocrites are much more dangerous than that. The hypocrites are planning a war. The only question is where? Where do I start? Let me start in Iran, where last night uh, the Iranian peaceful nuclear reactor, declared peaceful by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, which has testified time without number that Iran does not have a nuclear bomb, is not seeking to build a nuclear bomb, was itself bombed. Now, the Iranians are playing it down because if they didn't play it down, they'd have to respond. And then I'd be speaking to you already in the middle of a Middle East war. It would already have broken out because, of course, the Iranian peaceful nuclear reactor, if it was bombed last night, it was bombed by Israel, which made a joke this morning when asked if they had bombed Iran's nuclear reactor, 
We never ask a man what he did the night before. Well, let me speculate on what they did the night before. Let me speculate that they flew over or fired a missile over the airspace of Saudi Arabia and or the United Arab Emirates and that it landed on Iran's peaceful nuclear reactor. And it may or it may not have succeeded in destroying it. If it succeeded, there will be even now nuclear radiation in the entire area of Iran in which the reactor was situated. If it failed, one must presume that they will try again. Now, the IAEA is adamant that Iran does not have a nuclear weapon, but nobody doubts that Israel has hundreds of nuclear weapons, all of them undeclared, all of them illegally held, all of them built illegally with the illegal collaboration of countries like the United Kingdom and the United States of America. We know, thanks to the brave Jewish whistleblower, Mordechai Vanunu, who spent nearly 20 years in solitary confinement for telling us through the pages of Andrew Neil's Sunday Times, we know that 30 years ago, Israel had over 200 nuclear weapons, which it doesn't allow anybody to inspect. It will never permit the International Atomic Energy Agency to give it a clean bill of health. How's that for a double standard? Israel can have hundreds of illegal nuclear weapons. Iran gets bombed, bombed an act of international lawlessness of the kind which led to Nuremberg, which described the making of aggressive war as the ultimate crime. Did you read that in your newspapers this morning? Is it running on the BBC? This is the only place that you will hear and be able to discuss what happened in Iran last night. So if I was running a sweepstake, that would be one of the tickets in the hat for the place where the next war is going to happen. And if it happens, don't imagine for a moment that it will be confined to Israel versus Iran. Every country in between and all of the shipping naval, military, and aviation assets of everyone that is aligned and allied with Israel will be in the firing line. The Straits of Hormuz will instantly be blocked. The oil fields of our closest allies, the aforementioned Saudi Arabia among them, will be immediately on fire. You will not be able to buy a barrel of oil at any price. International trade will come to a halt in the Suez Canal. And the mother of all recessions will be immediately triggered. And that's the least dangerous 
of the theatres of war that I intend to discuss in this monologue. Perhaps the most dangerous is currently unfolding as I speak in the Ukraine. In the Ukraine, after a coup sponsored and organized by the European Union and the United States of America, the elected president was overthrown and driven from the country, the parliament was set on fire, and the very first law that the new parliament that succeeded the parliament that was burned down passed was to illegitimize, make illegal, the use of the Russian language in the country, which came as something of a shock to the 25% of the Ukrainian population that actually are Russian and speak nothing but Russian in their daily lives. Since when, the borderland between Russia and the Ukraine has become a free territory out with the reach of the coup government in Kiev, buttressed as it is by goose-stepping Nazi fanatics who literally wear swastikas on their armband. That area is called the Donbass. Many of you don't even know that word, don't even know that name, but you may very well hear of little else in the next weeks and months because the next war might be fought over the Donbass. This evening, the Ukrainian government has called on the United States, the United Kingdom and NATO immediately to send military forces uh, to the part of the Ukraine currently under siege and now being heavily bombarded by the Ukrainian armed forces, namely the Donbass. Now, the eastern Ukraine was the industrial heartland of the Ukraine. Russia doesn't want it, but may have to defend the millions of its people whom this evening it has been said by the leader of the Donbass authorities are to be given Russian citizenship. You feeling me? Millions of new Russian citizens being bombed right now by a Ukrainian military that may shortly be reinforced by UK, US and other NATO forces. That sound like a war to you? Well, it does to President Putin, who again this evening has said that the presence of any NATO forces in eastern Ukraine will be a red line for Russia. That sound like a war to you? It certainly does to me. So, dear citizens, of the European Union, of the UK and the US, you have to ask yourself this. In this bleak midwinter, 
When your old age pensioners are shivering and choosing between eating and heating, with your health services crumbling under the pressure of COVID-19 and all of its associated knock-on costs, with your crumbling infrastructures, are you ready to burn untold billions in a war with Russia? Are you ready for your sons, daughters to die in a war for the Donbass? Ask yourself that question because you may soon have to answer it. And of course, the third potential theater of war remains China, the same China that they're trying across an almost uncountable number of issues, ranging from Tibet to Huawei to Taiwan to the Muslims. The American people really don't like Muslims very much. And they really don't like Chinese people very much. But they really love Chinese Muslims. And they may well be asking you, to go to war on one or other or all of these trumped up fake news fabrications as great as the fabrications that drew us all into the disaster in the war and occupation of Iraq, which hasn't finished yet, whose reverberations are still shaking us even on the streets of Britain, of Europe, and the United States. People exploding amongst us, ready to explode themselves, to hurt the maximum number of us. All of it fueled by the total disaster of the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq. These wars, not only don't solve anything, they make everything worse, don't they? Didn't the war and occupation of Afghanistan make every matter worse? Or are you amongst those that thinks the 20 years of blood and treasure we spent in Afghanistan to have been worthwhile? Any of you out there think it was a good idea to overthrow the government of Iraq, to occupy it by hundreds of thousands of foreign soldiers and to send cascading around the world the ISIS ideology. Any of you still think it was a good idea to invade and overthrow Gaddafi in Libya and replace him with the alphabet soup of Islamist fanaticism, some of whom were nurtured here in our own country, in the city of Manchester, which I have just left, and in which I was when one of our hideous monstrosities that we had nurtured deliberately in Manchester blew himself and more than 20 children up in the Manchester arena. Any of you still think that it was a good idea? Any of you still think it was a good idea to become the Air Force 
and the armorer and the financier and the propagandizer for the Al-Qaeda ISIS hordes in Syria, whose black flag would be flying right now over Damascus if it were not for the aforementioned pantomime villain, President Putin. Any of you still think that was a good idea? I tell you, if I was to choose which of those three, China, Russia, Iran, was the most dangerous theater of war that we may now be standing at the doors of, I would find it difficult to differentiate between them. But here's the nightmare prospect, ladies and gentlemen. What about if a war on any one of them turns into a war against all of them, all at the same time? It's that time of year. Remember Napoleon's march on Moscow? Remember Hitler's attempt to march on Moscow? And remember how it ended. Now, my first guest this evening is one of the most honorable and most courageous men I've ever met. I have many political disagreements with him, but his integrity, his honor, and his courage have never, ever been in doubt. I've thought that from the moment uh, that the Labour Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, sacked him as Britain's ambassador to Uzbekistan, and I quote from the sacking letter, over-focusing on human rights. Yes, that's the people trying to boycott other people all over the world in the name of human rights. They sacked my next guest for over-focusing on human rights. I then worked with them very closely in the run-up to and in the aftermath of the disastrous invasion and occupation of Iraq. I never had any cause to doubt his integrity in his reportage of the crucifixion of Julian Assange. Indeed, he was virtually the only writer, the only British writer anyway, who was almost religiously reporting the actual facts in the trial, the persecution, the metaphorical crucifixion of the world historic publisher and journalist Julian Assange. And so I could automatically rely on his reportage of the trial of the framed Alex Salmond, a man who was set up by his own former colleagues, but who was acquitted on every single count by the good sense of a Scottish jury. Moreover, a Scottish jury with a majority of women. Perhaps for all of these reasons, my next guest was sent to a Scottish prison. 
as a civil prisoner and has only just emerged. Not blinking into the light, but roaring into the microphone. His defiance and his determination to continue the fights that he has been engaged in so honorably over these last decades. He is, of course, the former British ambassador, the honorable, very honorable, Craig Murray, and he joins me now. Craig, I think I speak for everyone when I say welcome back uh, into uh, the light of freedom. And I think I speak for everyone uh, when I ask you the first question, which is, how was it behind bars? Well, thank you, George. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to see you. It's an even greater pleasure today. Um, it's very unpleasant. Uh, it's quite extraordinarily Victorian and you know, old-fashioned repressive. I was held in a cell for a minimum of uh, 22 hours a day. And for a period of about a month, I was held in that cell for 23 and a half hours a day. And we're talking of a cell that's 12 feet by eight feet. Um, and prison is, is governed by an extraordinary set of, of rules, uh, which seem designed to make it as unpleasant as possible. And just to give you one uh, trivial example, but, but it, it's typical really of, of the experience, uh, there are complicated rules as to what you are allowed to put on your walls by way of posters and cards as in, you know, where you can't show any exposed nipples or, 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 or really complex rules as to what you can put up. Um, but then you are not allowed to have drawing pins, sellotape or blue tack. Uh, and it is not allowed to put things up with anything else because that would damage your walls. So in fact, you aren't allowed to put anything at all on, on, on the walls of yourself. Uh, and I just give that as, a, as I say, it's a trivial example, but these are the sort of things that make life so very, very unpleasant on a day-to-day -day basis uh, for the people in there. What did you do in that cell for 22 hours a day? A man like you, an intellectual, with all your books behind you, a man that has, if you'll forgive me, known the cocktail circuits of the foreign office, a man that's traveled the world, now you're locked up for 22, for a month, 23 and a half hours a day. What, how could you possibly fill that time? Well, um, I was permitted books. In, in fact, there's a, there's a special dispensation. Uh, I was allowed to have books which were sent in by people, which is not normally allowed. Um, on condition that they were donated to the prison library and I borrowed them. And, and that was done especially for me. So I was able to read a great deal. If I, if I hadn't been able to do that, uh, then my life would have been intolerable. And, and remember, that, that was especially for me because I was a civil prisoner. The lives of many criminal prisoners are in, 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 intolerable. Um, so I, you know, I was able to actually study uh, a great deal. and. Um, and to catch up on, on, if you like, some strands of modern thinking that I've not really looked into before. So I read up heavily on uh, modern monetary theory. I read heavily on critical race theory. I, you know, I, I, I took a chance to, um, 
to expand my intellectual horizons a little bit. You see, this is what I said last week uh, with Dr. Deepa Driver talking about your case. Not only was this a wicked and cruel imprisonment to which you were sentenced, it was also an extremely stupid one. Because I said to Dr. Deepa, and I put to you now, you've got one hell of a book in you now. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's true. I'm not sure I should write a book specifically about my prison experience, because that would be rather self-centered, if you like. Um, but what I've learned about social justice and the lack of social justice in, in, in the UK um, has been fascinating. I mean, what I learned most was some conversations in, in the very brief periods per day I was allowed with other prisoners. And the vast majority of people in jail should not be there. The vast majority of them are, are suffering from addiction. And they, they may have committed crime in order to feed their addiction, but it's the addiction which is the, uh, which, which is the base problem. And the vast majority of criminals are, are born into the poorest and most deprived households, are, are born into crime, in a sense, are certainly born into extreme poverty. And they're failed by social and educational policies, a great many of them, uh, an extraordinarily high proportion, have been in institutions of one kind and another ever since childhood, you know, including foster care, young offenders institutions. Um, uh, very many of them have suffered from uh, sexual or physical abuse within those institutions. Uh, we, you know, we are failing uh, people in our society who are written off effectively from birth, and then the results of that, we are simply locking away in appalling conditions in which you wouldn't keep a dog uh, and locking them away. Not really, nothing really happens in terms of educational rehabilitation in jail. You know, it's all a pretense and a myth. Uh, and uh, the things I learned shocked me. They, 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 they really did. I, I know like most middle-class people, perhaps I, I make assumptions about our society uh, and how it is for people at the bottom of society, uh, you know, which are overly optimistic. I, I, I know a very great deal more now. How did the other prisoners, not that they could see you much, but how, how much interface did you have with the other prisoners? I mean, when you were out in the yard, were there other people there? How did the other uh, inmates treat you? Sometimes there were a few other people in the yard with me, people who were um, on remand. Um, uh, and sometimes I was alone. Um, I, I mean, the way I was treated was really quite extraordinary. You would have thought I was uh, Rudolf Hess. You know, it's, <laughs> there were times when I was walking around the exercise yard on my own with four prison officers watching me, which, which seemed to me, uh, you know, just absolutely crazy. But when I did talk with other prisoners, I, I can say I didn't, on what, I never, ever encountered any hostility from a, from a fellow prisoner. They were all extremely polite to me. I was able to, um, to, to help some occasionally with, with advice on their case, or, um, you know, a surprisingly high proportion of, of people in jail are, are illiterate, or at least not confident reading and writing, and I was able to help people fill in forms and, uh, uh, and that kind of thing. But they, they all accepted me 
as they found me, if you like, as a, as a friendly and helpful person. And there was a surprising amount of knowledge had percolated into the jail as to who I was and why I was there. And so obviously there's a great deal of, of sympathy from the prisoners at having a, a political prisoner within their midst. But they were very, very supportive of me. I, uh, I have a long association with uh, the Prison Officers Association. Uh, and I, I, it's with some trepidation uh, that I ask you this next question. How did the prison staff relate to you? Um, very well. Uh, I, I mean, you, you, you need have no trepidation because people may be surprised to hear I was very impressed by the prison officers. And not only in the way they related to me, but in the way they related to, to ordinary criminal prisoners as well. I, I saw a very great deal of patience and kindness from prison officers. Of course, they're not all perfect. I'm not claiming it all perfect. But in general, I thought that they do a fantastic job in trying to keep together a system, uh, you know, a hopeless system, where people are, are churned through again and again and again. People coming back to prison for the eighth or ninth time, kept in appalling conditions, massive overcrowding, a feeling of hopelessness. Um, and it's not the fault of the prison officers. They didn't invent or design the system. They really have no say in the policies. They, they have to try to make it work. And I, I saw um, dedicated and kind people. I, I, I was I wasn't expecting prison officers to be like that. I was actually expecting uh, them to be quite unpleasant and nasty and sharp and formal, um, authoritarian, if, if if you like. And I really didn't see any of those things. I, I I saw a very great deal of kindness and care from prison officers, and it did surprise me. I absolutely was not expecting to see that. So when they uh, incredibly. Uh, tried to handcuff you uh, to make a hospital visit. Uh, they were doing that because that's the, the rules that they are being told to apply. Am I right? Uh, you are right, but there's also the case that those weren't prison officers. That was a private company. Um, the escorting of prisons outside the jail uh, has been privatized. Um, neither the police who took me to the prison nor the prison officers at any stage attempted to handcuff me or restrain me or strip search me. Uh, the only time any of those things were ever attempted on me were attempted by a private company. Uh, and apparently uh, the reason for this is because in their private contract, the private company loses so much money for every prisoner which escapes, who escapes. So they therefore... Uh, insist on manacling everybody, no matter how crazy that is. Now, you're a, you're a kinder, gentler person than me. Uh, I, I would be, I, actually, I am extremely bitter at the justice system that put you through this. How do you feel about it now? Are you angry? Uh, do you seek uh, to continue uh, the campaign, or have you turned a leaf uh, and going to go for a quiet life now? Well, um, no, I'm certainly not going to go for a quiet life. I mean, my worry is it can happen to somebody else. Um, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not personally angry or bitter because it doesn't help. It, you know, it doesn't help with, in, in 
judgment on the on on, on the way going forward. So, um, but my worry is that the judgment enshrines in law the concept uh, that bloggers and mainstream media uh, should be treated differently before a court. The different standards should apply. But a blogger can write something and be jailed for it, and if the mainstream media publishes the same thing, they will not be jailed for it. Uh, and that's extraordinary. It says that absolutely in black and white in the judgment. Um, that's very bad. And, and this whole idea that anybody who publishes any of the defense case in a trial, in a sexual assault trial, that any extra information you give at all about the case is jigsaw information. There's nothing you can say about the defense that could not in some way help identify who a defendant is. For example, by where the uh, incident took place or when it took place. So um, this uh, use of this extremely nebulous idea of jigsaw identification could be used very easily just to um, uh, jail anyone they want to, in effect, and there's no real defense for it. So, so no, this is appalling. This has got to be appealed on to eventually to the European Court of Human Rights, because otherwise I won't be the last victim. Uh, it, it will happen to other people. So uh, the judgment means that someone like you is uh, a lesser journalist, a lesser writer, uh, with fewer legal protections than a journalist on The Sun or The Daily Star or other paragons of mainstream virtue. And that's now enshrined in law unless this judgment is overturned. Exactly, because the, although it was a court of first instance, it was, strangely enough, the Court of Appeals in Scotland that, that made the judgment with three judges. So that now applies, really, you know, it can be quoted pretty well anywhere in the English-speaking world, uh, and it is a direct legal precedent in all parts of the United Kingdom. Um, and, and that is exactly what it says. I mean, rather amusingly, it, it says that the, it, it specifically says that the mainstream media are more ethical uh, than <laughs> new media, <laughs> which, um, which comes as I don't know whether to laugh or cry at that idea. Um, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, we, we all love you and we've been with you right from the beginning of this uh, horrific affair. Um, are you in the clear now? Uh, I mean, there's, no, there's nobody watching and taking notes for this that could put you back in trouble? Can you get back in trouble on the same issue or is there double jeopardy uh, uh, preclusion or what? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm now served four months of an eight month sentence and were I to um, uh, say anything that annoys uh, Lady Dorian, then presumably they could stick me back in for the other uh, four months. So um, I shall be careful in what I say about the, um, uh, the case going forward, George. I wanted, incidentally, to remind you, after your, your, your splendid introduction, that, in fact, we, we first met in 1977 in Dundee, wow. where we had buckets and were collecting money for the strikers at the national, at NCR, the NCR strike. Wow. At, at wow. Well, we are, of course, uh, uh, both uh, Dundonians, and uh, I would like to think uh, two of the most eminent. Uh, from that uh, fair city. Uh, so uh, there are many reasons that uh, 
that we love you and that we felt so badly for you. But I've got to say, you're looking well, sounding well. Uh, so maybe, you know, every cloud and all that. Um, I don't know, what was the diet like there? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't nearly as bad as you might expect. Um, food was, um, it was like school food or hospital food. You, you know, it was uh, shepherd's pie and toad in the hole and those kind of things. But, but and it, it was perfectly edible. Um, I, I didn't mind it at all. And again, I think that's probably because the prison food has not been privatized. Uh, so, so, it's, so it's not too bad. Well, we better uh, wish on that one or uh, we'll be giving them ideas. The Honourable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, political prisoner extraordinaire. I salute you, sir, as do, I'm sure, the vast majority of the audience this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, look, we've got a poll running which is going whew, through the roof. Uh, should the COVID vaccine be mandatory? So far, yes, 17%. No, 83%. And that's pretty common across all the platforms. That, was on, that number I just gave you is from Twitter. On my YouTube channel, it's yes, 19%. No, 81%. And on Telegram, yes, 16%, no, 84%. So pretty uh, universally, overwhelmingly unpopular, uh, that idea. And maybe my next guest uh, will have something to say about it. Uh, we've gone from the sublime to the sublime. Uh, not only did we have a former British ambassador who might have done better if he'd had my next guest uh, representing him in court, though I think that was probably not possible under the rules. Certainly, if I was ever in serious trouble, he'd be my lawyer, uh, I'm sure. He is, of course, the People's QC. The Right Honourable uh, Craig Murray is followed by the Honourable Michael Mansfield QC. Michael, thank you for joining us. I'm, uh, let me ask you right up top, what do you think about that poll we're running? Should the COVID vaccine be mandatory? Uh, it's a difficult one. I'm in favour of the vaccine. I've just had the booster, and I think that it, it depends on the extent to which we have an emergency. I tend to look at these things, and that's the point of the People's COVID inquiry. I tend to look at them uh, globally. In other words, we're not here dealing with a national sort of race as some uh, Tory MPs seem to think, we get ahead of the game and somehow we uh, transcend and transition from pandemic to endemic, um, which I find quite extraordinary because of course we can't do that. Whilst it's the old phrase, whilst it's anywhere, it's everywhere. Therefore, we have to ensure as far as possible that the vaccine is available not to fourth boosters in the United Kingdom, but in fact to first boosters, uh, sorry, first vaccinations um, in other parts of the world, two thirds of which haven't had any at all. Uh, and I do accept that it does have some beneficial effect in stemming the way in which the virus spreads. But unless you can do much better than we're doing, then you know, you're whistling in the wind. So I, I ha I, I'm, I'm anxious that it doesn't become a politicized matter 
which I heard somebody, uh, I've forgotten, uh, uh, very recently on the radio saying, oh, it's all a matter of thought control and government control. I, I, you know, I have absolutely no faith in Boris. That's the whole point of our report. Been a, a pattern of misconduct in public office. That's what we've described it. So I've no, no brief for him, obviously. But at the same time, uh, I am concerned about the ordin ordinary person, uh, the ordinary person who is in very straitened circumstances. And, and I think we... If necessary, it, it, I don't think it's yet, uh, because what should have happened from the beginning is, um, if you like, guidance on suppression, instead of which we've had leadership, which has changed. Oh, it's OK now. We can all go on holiday. No, it's not OK. You can't go on holiday. Uh, now you can open a club. Now you can't open a club. It's been total mess, start to finish. They should have had a structure and regime which would have not involved debates about whether we need to make it mandatory. Yeah, well, I'm double vaccinated and waiting for my booster, so I'm not uh, anti-vax in, in any way. But there must be, from your point of view as a human rights lawyer, serious human rights issues in mandatory vaccination of people who don't want it, surely? No. I don't think that... that I mean, if you think about it, and I don't know this, whether this has come up in debate, but I mean, a similar debate was held about safety belts in cars. Now, a lot of people, including myself, I, I didn't really want one. I thought the freedom of being able to sit in a car and not bother. I, I was one of those who thought about that. But, it, you know, <laughs> a human right in what sense? It's a human right in the sense that... Well, bodily, uh, bodily autonomy for a start, that the state cannot put something into your body that you don't want. Well, well they, they can do other things that you don't want. Uh, for, uh, and safety belts is an example. You may not want it. it. It is controlling your bodily function. In other words, you have to strap yourself in. So I think that once you start thinking about what we allow the state to do, there are some things, obviously, we shouldn't allow the, the state to do. But if the object of the exercise... Uh, and, and I'm not disputing this, and I don't think you are either, uh, it is indicating that scientifically there is a benefit to be had from vaccination, then I think there comes a point at which if people are refusing to do so, they're ignoring my human rights. I mean, if I want to put it solidly, in other words, you know, it, it isn't, uh, I don't think it is a matter of, Again, it's dressing this up in a sort of human rights debate. The human, it's not a human rights debate. It's a health and welfare debate. It's about um, a survival of the planet and the exploitation of the planet. These are the debates that I prefer, prefer to have because the situation we're now in is being produced by a zoonotic position whereby we're exploiting the planet, we're exploiting animals, we're running the risk of virus transferring. This was predicted in 2006 uh, by the Institute of Science. They predicted we're gonna have a, uh, something like this. They did tests in 2016 to discover that in fact the, the nation was not prepared, but did they do anything? They did nothing. And then we end up, you know, as it were having debates about human rights uh, and putting a virus in, when, uh, a vaccine in, when in fact, had it been handled differently from the beginning, there wouldn't have been a need to go to these extremities. It's because it's been handled really badly, especially by the British government. Indeed so. Uh, tell us about this people's uh, inquiry. 
who, who founded it, who constituted it, and what were their main findings? Okay, three things, really. One, uh, it's called a people's COVID inquiry. People may say, what's a people's inquiry? Well, uh, a people's inquiry, uh, there have been plenty of them over the last 50 years or more. Uh, Bertrand Russell was one of the first to coin the phrase of a citizen's inquiry of conscience. It's where a government, national or international, doesn't perform its obligations. And the people say, well, we want accountability. We want the truth. truth and if you're not going to do it, we'll set one up. And of course, the people who do that are different depending on what the issue is and depending on the circumstances. And I've been involved in eight or nine before this, some in the UK, some in the Middle East, uh, and one in South Africa. So I'm very, very familiar with how it can be done. In this case, it was a campaign called uh, Keep uh, Our National Health Public. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. K-O-N-P because they had uh, seen very clearly that what was happening even before COVID was the dissembling of the NHS, starving it of funds, because of course, um, there is a huge vested interest in the private sector. So that was what was happening, and not only in hospitals and care homes, but in the social services structure generally, and economically, generally, a weakened population. So, they wanted to have uh, an inquiry now, not sometime in the future, because in fact, Boris originally said he wasn't gonna have one. Then he said in July last year, all right, I'll have one. But he wouldn't say when, he did nothing, absolutely nothing, because he wasn't really wanting one. Then this year, the bereaved said, well, wait a minute, you, you said you were gonna have one, when are you gonna have it? Oh, it's not time now to have one, it's uh, gonna interrupt with uh, my, my government, if I'm doing any governing. And so um, that obviously angered everybody who said, well, you, you know, you made a promise. Uh, and once a few notable figures like the Archbishop of Canterbury weighed in as well behind the bereaved, Boris uh, shifted again, as he does regularly, almost every day now. He said, all right, all right, yes, I'm going to have one. And I'm going to launch it, very careful to listen to his words. I'm going to launch it next year in the spring. What's happened? Nothing. Nothing at all. And so the campaign were completely right to say if we wait for Boris it either won't happen or it'll happen when it's no longer relevant. So we launch a, an inquiry. I'm the chair uh, of a panel of three others, all of them very well respected and established members of the medical fraternity. And uh, the object of the exercise is we had to do it online, we couldn't do it together for reasons that are obvious. 
we, we had a string of witnesses, some the bereaved, some experts, uh, people that are, are very well known, independent sage, for example, were well represented in, in, in amongst many others, experts from uh, South Africa, from New Zealand, wherever. So that we had over 50 witnesses gave evidence and they, were ex they had to make statements first. We had a, um, a barrister, another barrister who was counsel to the inquiry and it was all being um, recorded. It's all been transcribed and now a full report this last week in a press conference that was held in central London. Uh, we've issued the report. So we get to the final stage of the findings. Well, the main finding is misconduct in public office. That has two meanings, the vernacular, namely the way in which it's been handled generally by government, not just this one, but the ones before, by primarily just not actually a listening to those who had predicted exactly what has happened. And in 2016, although they kept it very quiet, they didn't want it to come out, uh, they had an exercise called Alice in which they uh, tested the possibility of a coronavirus, mm. which is the, the root of MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So they knew all about it. They knew it would be a rapid transmission. They knew that they would have to have PPE. They would have to have hospital beds. They'd have to have trained staff. Did they do any of it? They did nothing. Misconduct in public office as a legal concept uh, then comes into play because where there is, and I use this phrase, an abuse of the public's trust, and I think that's exactly what's happened here, um, and that's only the beginning because that's before COVID actually hits our shores. Uh, and then there comes a second stage whereby it's on its way. And what does, um, what does Boris do? Well, he doesn't bother to even turn up to Cobra meetings. To begin with, it's, oh, well, ignore that. You know, I'm going to shake hands with everybody, just as he's doing now, sort of uh, blows hot and cold the whole time. So in the early stages, we had two months before lockdown, in fact, to get it together, and we didn't. So they didn't use the NHS. They didn't use, they went out to private tender. Well, they didn't even do that. They went to their, you know, friends and neighbours. Cronyism, I'm not the only one saying it. The National Audit Office has said it as well. And so it meant that from start to finish right now, we have a similar problem. The only reason he's off the hook a bit is because the NHS stepped in and have been distributing the vaccine. And they could have done that with test and trace, which was a complete dismal failure. You need to have te a proper test and trace. And that was another finding that they didn't do that. They wasted billions of pounds. Tens of billions. Contract. Tens of billions. It may be, yeah. the, may be the most expensive blunder or worse than a blunder uh, in, uh, in, in British uh, governmental history. Uh, we've well, only I got think... a minute or so left. Let me ask you this, though. I'm bound to do it. Do you think Labour would have handled the the pandemic better? No. I don't think so, because um, Keir Starmer's, uh, as it were, reacting to Boris doing this or doing that, and he's saying, why wasn't this done earlier? I, I've no, I, well, I say no. I've no idea whether they would or not. Or I've watched the shadow health minister. It seems to me that he's not ahead of the game, and he wouldn't have been... Uh, any, well, he'd have been maybe marginally better, but not a lot. He's actually just been demoted. Uh, in any case, he's no longer the health yeah, spokesman in the, great, yeah. uh, in the great reshuffle. Michael Mansfield, QC, and chair of the People's COVID Inquiry. Thank you very much indeed for I joining us. And I wish uh, <laughs> as many people as possible uh, read your report.
and react uh, to it. Thank you. We'll put the details up on the screen. Uh, should the COVID vaccine be mandatory? Uh, thousands of you have voted on this. Thousands. Yes, 17%. No, 83%. That's pretty more or less common throughout the three platforms on my Twitter, on my YouTube and on my Telegram. Thousands and thousands of you have voted. You've still got time uh, to get your vote in. Now, last week, we asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. Not only that, but our daily download record was also broken in the last week. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation, then please subscribe so you can listen to Moats anywhere, anytime, from every corner of the earth. So distilled, if you, some of you who don't know what a podcast is like me, it's the distilled version of this show, shorn of all the peripheral material, like the news and jingles. It's just pure moats. 90 minutes instead of three hours. So if you do it and you love it, please uh, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the ways by which we grow. And if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be next week. 101 countries. Can we get it up even higher than that? I hope so. Uh, loads and loads and loads of social media. But let's take Scott in Glasgow first and foremost. Scott, welcome. Yes, hello. Thank you, Jules. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, yeah, um, well, straight in, like, the masks don't work. Never have the viruses, unless you want to look at the new science this, since, since 2020, when all the, the tele-doctors and all that suddenly say that, that viruses have gone, like, 20 times in size, or a mask can stop them. So the masks don't work. The vaccine don't work. Track and trace didn't work. And the tests don't work. The tests are anywhere between 20 and 40%. It's ridiculous. So all of this is not incompetence. You don't get to do all them things by mistake. You don't get to organize the biggest transfer of wealth in human history by being incompetent or a mistake, right? It's what, what has happened in the last 20 months is that COVID is a scam. It's a con. They have one shot at getting this right. Since the 70s, I've been planning this. If they fail, the whole house of corporate cards comes down. Mm. As this has opened up the eyes of even mm. the most trusting of voting All right, uh, let, me stop you. let me stop you uh, in mid-rant. Uh, why is uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba in on this capitalist conspiracy? Well, you, you could ask why. I mean, Cuba's, well, you know, there's about four or five countries that are not under the control of the IMF. You could ask the same question. Why does every country allow the IMF? To, for instance, uh, uh, but, but the, the Cuba doesn't allow the IMF. No, I'm, no, no. I'm no, asking you. It's a simple question, Scott. Why is... Communist Cuba, communist China, and communist Vietnam, and communist North Korea going along with this capitalist scam. 
There, there are there are social credit um, scores going on in China. There are certain bits of China that have rolled out a social credit score, which is what this is all about. So you can knock China off that list, George. So because is China, China not communist? Is China not communist? No, I'm just you know you're you're, you're fired up. I get that. Left, Scott, 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 right. you're fired up. I get that. But you've fallen at the first hurdle because you say it is a global capitalist scam planned since the 1970s, but you cannot answer why Castro's Cuba would be participating in this long-planned capitalist scam. Can you? I, I asked you the same, you mentioned China. Why are China involved? No, let's go back is to there, Cuba. There, let's go back to well, Cuba. We, well, we already know, China? because we already know you don't regard uh, China as communist. But I presume, I presume you regard Cuba, I presume you regard Cuba as communist. So why is communist Cuba in on this capitalist scam? Why? Well, because I don't think this is a communist or capitalist or, or I mean, it's not a left or right. It's not a black or white. This transcends. It's a, trans it's a transfer of wealth, you said. Biggest it's one in the of history wealth. of the human race, yeah, you yeah, said. Yes, in, in the last why is, months, why is Cuba Why is Cuba involved in that? Um, I don't know how far Cuba are involved in Cuba it. Cuba has its own vaccine. It is a world leader. In, uh, in vaccination. Is it, is it uh, the Sputnik? I'm sorry? Or is it different? Is it, is it the Sputnik? It's, its, own, it's got or... its own vaccine. Cuba, well, Cuba is a biomedical then. leader in the world, and you are completely unable to give me a simple logical answer. If this is all a capitalist scam planned since the 1970s, why are all these commies in on it? Because, George... It transcends the isms. It transcends that. Well, do, do you not think... Who, who, that, are they that, that, who are they transferring wealth to? If, it's, if it's, it's all about it's transferring wealth, who are they transferring wealth to? Well, I, I would say probably uh, uh, BlackRock. I would say probably Cuba. Uh, Vanguard. Cuba. Uh, Vanguard. Cuba. Do you think Vanguard haven't got stocks and shares uh, interest in Cuba? Do you think they're not in control? Oh, of Cuba no, you're, now in uh, you're now officially a fool. If you think there are stocks and shares in Cuba and Vanguard have got stocks and shares in Cuba, you're officially a fool. Let's go to Pablo in Salford. Go ahead, Pablo. All right, George. This is my second call. Um, Welcome. I'm not wrong. I've got wrong for a bit, but I had to ring when that Scott was going on about all oh, this is fake. And you know what, uh, George? I shared, shared the same mentality of him, um, along with a lot more conspiracy theories out there. Um, I believed it was a hoax. I thought, I've not caught the COVID in two years. I don't know anyone who has caught the COVID. And then what happened um, last summer was nearly tragic enough to take my life and my partner's life. Her daughter came home from school. She wasn't very well. So we said, just lie on the couch. She lies on the couch like a poorly child. And day by day, she was deteriorating a bit. Temperature was going high. Cut a long story short, we've got um, test kits because we have um, a chemist drop our medicine off. And at the time, he said, I've got to give these COVID test kits out. Do what you want with them. Throw them in the bin. Use them. 
my partner says, shall I use it? Again, I'm at the mentality, she's only got a cold, it's only temperature. I said, use it. It's shown up positive. Right. So I said, if it's as bad as they're making out, me and you will both get it then, won't we? People were saying, listen, you should isolate her in a bedroom, don't. I wasn't buying it. It nearly, and when I say it nearly cost me my life, George, it really did. I'm a lung, I'm a lung sufferer patient. Um, I'm under a lot of treatments. Anyway, my partner then tested herself about five, six days later because she wasn't feeling necessarily well. Well, guess what? The test showed up positive. And then three days later, I tested myself and um, I got my first positive reading. So I'll go back a bit. We, we were all testing at the time. My, uh, the child shown up positive and ours was negative for a couple of days. But then they both shown positive, right? So I can't floor, I can't floor this testing. Where everyone said, oh, the testing's rubbish, the testing's rubbish. Anyway, I ended up in hospital and so did my partner. Um, she got out a bit quicker than I did. Uh, she, she deteriorated a little bit where she needed 4% oxygen. I deteriorated that bad. I was on maximum os- oxygen you can give a person. When I was breathing, the ventilators on the mask were going up and down, up and down. I couldn't control my breathing. I was on a CPAP machine which breathes for you one step away from intensive care so now when i hear these stories i cringe scotty and not scotty sorry george i I absolutely absolutely cringe and i just think pablo that that is one of the most powerful and important calls that we've ever taken and i hope people reflect on it i seriously do and i wish you and your family uh, good health from here on in let's uh get Eddie in Cambridge up next. Please, Eddie. Yes. I was very surprised to hear that you thought the COVID virus was a natural occurrence. The majority of people think, and according to the ex-president of the United States, that it started in Wuhan and a laboratory. Well, uh, I know that Dr. Trump, uh, PhD, uh, and scientific wizard uh, considered himself a very considerable genius, a strong and stable genius. But I'm not sure that his declarations of where and how the virus began can necessarily be taken at face value. Okay. Well, can you, if he was saying that the Chinese are experimenting in their laboratories with germ warfare, then he's almost admitting that America, Britain, and Port Down, and all the other countries are experimenting with germ warfare. There's no, doubt, there's no, doubt, there's no, there's no doubt about that latter point. Uh, but there has been a World Health Organization inquiry into the uh, start of the COVID crisis, and they did not find uh, that it was man-made, that it was made in Wuhan, that it was made even necessarily in China. Uh, There are uh, considerable uh, grounds for believing that actually uh, that the uh, virus first arose in Italy uh, and other parts of Europe. So at this stage, uh, I don't think you should be trumpeting the talking points of the Trumps. Well, it's not Trump as a person. It's what, what his position was that we were. But okay, the facts point 
that it's a man-made. If you go out in the street and everybody you speak to, you're in a very little minority when you believe it is a natural occurrence. Yeah, but most people yeah, believe it. Of course, that, but, 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 but Eddie, Eddie, we had a guy on, a compatriot of ours, uh, just a few minutes ago, claiming it doesn't exist. It's a scam, one that's been planned since the 1970s. Uh, so we could transfer wealth, the biggest transfer in human history, he called it. And, 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 and Castro, Castro's in on it. Well, what is that going to do what I'm talking about at the moment? Because I'm talking uh, about the uh, moment we have a virus, Eddie, a very dangerous yeah, virus, I know. and we're doing nothing about it. All we right. are experimenting with viruses, right. and you and people are, people in authority are not finding out what they're experimenting well, with. Unfortunately, any... I'm unfortunately not in authority, but I will say this to you. Here's what it has to do with the point that you're making. That because Big Aggie on the Facebook or on the bus in Sweden uh, or in Cambridge even, where you're calling from, say something, it doesn't make it true. Even if, as you say, the majority of people are saying it, though I don't know how you divine that majority, uh, that doesn't make it true. China denies that it is responsible for this virus. Uh, the WHO backs China's denial. So you're going to need to prove to me with more than everybody in Sweden thinks so. Last word to you. Could you answer this, please? Yeah. Why has this occurred recently within the last two, three, four or five years. But there's the been human loads race of these has been things. going for millions of years. Eddie, and all of a Eddie, sudden we get a virus Eddie, there's, been, there's been Ebola, there's been SARS. In 2016 we made a war game here in Britain about the impact of, guess what, a coronavirus. There are all, the Spanish flu killed more people than the First World War. It was a virus. It's not just happening over the last two or three years. So how long has the coronavirus been going for then? Well, coronaviruses have been going forever. The Spanish okay, flu, the Spanish flu, like all flus, is a coronavirus. So... So what are they experimenting with our taxpayers' money, with the best brains that we've got in the country? What are they experimenting with imported down? Can you say they're not now, experimenting now you're with onto something. warfare? Now you're on to something. The most obscene practice in humankind surely must be the search for biological and chemical weapons to cause murder and mayhem amongst other people. Finally, you and I found agreement uh, on that point. There's a new poll now. The next war will be over. A, Ukraine. B, Taiwan. C, Iran. Get voting now on my Twitter, uh, at George Galloway, on my YouTube channel, 
and on my Telegram channel. Viewers are watching in Cincinnati, Ohio, Sweden, and the Emirate of Ras al and in Kentucky. And a very good evening, afternoon, morning, whatever it is where you are. And thank you for joining us. Critical Minds says, finally a poll George put out that's worth a vote. <laughs> Thanks very much, I think. Michael Curry says, congratulations, Barbados. And Gaggy says, take a look at the protest in Serbia over the weekend. War on Rio Tinto and its friends running the country. That's interesting. Call us. I don't know anything about that. Trevor Bevan says war breaks out between Europe and the USA to try to re-educate the Americans to stop invading other countries. We do a fair bit of invading other countries ourselves. And uh, Fokham says Iran is a huge country and any war involving them would be massive. The MSM haven't covered this. And Michael Collins, this is the message of the night. Only a gentle Jesus could have created a soul like George. Assuming that Michael means me, I thank him very much indeed. He might have meant George Bush or George Michael. But if he did mean me, I'm touched, okay? Now, all sorts of things happening in the United States, always. People running riot in schools with automatic weapons, bought for them by their parents for Christmas. As you do, a, a congressman, a Christian congressman, sending out a Christmas card of him and his missus and all of his children, all holding, sporting, automatic weapons. Christmas, good cheer, goodwill to all men and all that. Well, let's go to the one and only Rachel Blevins, my RT America colleague who joins us now. It's always a, a delight, but I always have to ask you, and I'm going to do it again, what on earth is Donald Trump up to? He's just <laughs> raised a billion dollars in investment for his social media company. I reckon he's going to clean up with that. He's going to sweep everyone else away. Is it real or, or is it braggadocio? Well, see, it's one of those things where you kind of have to really delve into the details of exactly what he's doing. Now, $1 billion is an impressive number. It's interesting because we don't really know where all that's coming from. His team hasn't quite said who these mysterious investors are. But Maybe the Russians. Time. Maybe it's Russia. <laughs> Maybe it's in rubles. Maybe it's a billion rubles. You know, I, I'm surprised that that theory hasn't actually been put out there yet, George. You may think that someone from MSNBC or CNN is listening to this interview right now, <laughs> and they're going to take it and run with it and make it Russiagate 2021 or some version of that. Yeah. Because when you look at what Trump is doing, what he's done is he wants to make this not just a social media platform, but he also wants to make it part of his company and then go public with it so that the average American can invest in it. Now, that's an interesting strategy. It's typically one that's used when someone already has a company that is providing a product that people know. And, you know, you think of Facebook, Twitter, that kind of thing. That makes sense that you would want to go and buy shares in their company. With Trump, 
we still don't know what this new truth social is going to look like. And they were supposed to roll out some sort of a beta invite only version last month, and they didn't do that. So right now, yes, they say they have a billion dollars invest in investments in it so far, but at the moment, it's really just an idea. And we don't know what that platform is actually going to look like. And then on top of that, we also don't know how long Truth Social is actually going to be around because what they're doing is they're making the same mistake that a website like Parler made earlier this year, where they come out with this new social media platform, but then they put it on the app store. They you know, rely on Google. They rely on Amazon Web Services in order to host their platform. Well, then what happens when Apple and Google and Amazon decide that they have violated their terms of services? They come in, they take it all down, and it doesn't matter if there's a billion dollars behind it. At the end of the day, they are sort of the ones who run the Internet, so to speak. That's a very powerful point. Uh, but there must be a way around that, mustn't there? You know, we've seen this increasing move with some of those independent social media sites to sort of rely on blockchain technology and to look at ways to go around Amazon and to go around Google. So it is very possible. Now, the only problem is that Trump and his team don't really seem to be looking at that right now. It doesn't seem like they're something that is on their radar, at least as far as we know. It seems like they're trying to go more of the traditional route. And of course, we also have to remember that not only are they going the traditional route, but they are presenting this as a platform that they say is all about free speech. But the only problem is that you can't criticize its founder or the website itself. So the question is not just how long is this website up, but also how many people are actually going to join it and stay on it. And is it just going to become one of those things where it's only for Trump and his followers and it never really takes off and becomes the alternative that we all want and need to other sites like Twitter and Facebook? Now, our colleague Chris Hedges, I saw him uh, speaking in New York uh, in a video earlier today uh, about the trial of, of Ghislaine Maxwell, something, again, we've spoken about before. Uh, Chris was pulling no punches. He was naming names. And it is a sordid litany of the, I was going to say great and the good. Few of them are great and almost none of them are good. Uh, but the rich and powerful, a litany of the rich and powerful men that managed to see something in the child pedophile trafficking monster that was Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, how is the trial going? Well, it's going, and I, you know, I give kudos to Chris Hedges for actually standing there and calling out those names, calling out the people who were associated with Epstein, because right now what we're watching is we're watching a trial that's unfolding, and it's very clear what Ghislaine Maxwell's defense is trying to do, because we heard from her before the trial even started. She said, A, she wasn't going to get a fair trial, and then she said, B, that she was being tried for Epstein's crimes. And that's exactly what the defense has tried to do, is try to say that Ghislaine Maxwell is the original victim of Jeffrey Epstein, that she wasn't a part of any of this for her own free will, that she was just going along with what he tricked her into. And I mean, it is the most ridiculous thing that I have ever heard paying any attention to not only what Ghislaine Maxwell has done, what she's been accused of doing, and you see in all of the photos that we've seen of Epstein and all of these powerful people, Ghislaine is right there next to him. 
And to think that in any world that she was just going along with it and that we should feel sorry for her because she was just some socialite who got tricked into this is truly insane. And especially I hope that this will be a case where we get to hear more and more of the testimony from the women who were abused by her as children, who tell the stories of how she groomed them, how she herself abused them, and how she got them stuck in this world of being sex trafficked as children. But a lot of that really does remain to be seen. And it also, you know, makes the media coverage even more and more important of it, because so far we've continued to see this narrative of, oh, poor Ghislaine, she just got sucked into this and we should all feel sorry for her for what she's going through right now. Now, unemployment uh, amongst the Cuomo brothers is now 100 uh, percent. <laughs> the governor uh, of New York uh, was forced to resign. And now his brother, the CNN uh, presenter, commentator, man with his own show, apparently the world his oyster, he's been sacked effectively immediately. Can you tell us why? Yeah, uh, CNN came out with kind of an interesting statement on that one. And originally he was suspended and they claimed that it was because he helped out his brother during the scandal that we saw Andrew Cuomo go through when he was the governor of New York. Now, none of this scandal was, of course, about all of the elderly people in nursing homes who he left to die of COVID last year. And instead, it was about a number of other things involving him and inappropriate contact with women, especially his staffers. But with Chris Cuomo, we heard from CNN that he was going to be suspended. Then they came out yesterday and said that he was fired. Now, they're claiming that they got some sort of a report of sexual misconduct involving Chris Cuomo, and that's why they took action. It's ironic because these things always seem to happen with these major mainstream networks, whether it be CNN or NBC, who come out and they say, hey, we got this report about one of our top anchors. We're taking action immediately. And then it turns out that there's a lot more to the story. You know, we saw NBC go through this where some of their top executives were also accused of sexual misconduct. They did nothing about it. But when they decided that they wanted to take out one of their top anchors, that's exactly what they did. They made it sound like they were doing the right thing and making themselves look good. But it is interesting when you see a, an industry that continually has this problem. And yet I don't trust that CNN didn't know about any of this at all. It seems a lot more likely that they saw the momentum building around Chris Cuomo and they knew that taking him off their airwaves, not only would it save them a few million bucks a year for whoever they bring in to replace him, but at the same time, it also takes away from the fact that their ratings are down 77% in the last year alone. I mean, that in and of wow. itself is crazy. 77% in a year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it goes to show, I mean, sure, they lost their favorite person to talk about, which, of course, was Donald Trump. But it also goes to show just how much they were talking about Trump and obsessing over him and making him the focal point of their coverage while they lose him. And now people suddenly don't want to watch anymore. <laughs> how the mighty have fallen. Um, <laughs> speaking of people whose ratings are crashing, tell us about Kamala Harris. She... Uh, she seems to me to be on the receiving end uh, of uh, a plot, really, a conspiracy to get rid of her. It may be thoroughly deserved. I wouldn't vote for her in a month of Sundays. But <laughs> she seems to be being made the scapegoat for the utter inadequacy 
of her boss, Joe Biden, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I know this is something we talked about even months ago, which was just how often she kind of gets blamed for everything that's going wrong with the Biden administration. We saw that she was tasked with handling immigration, you know, and handling the issues at the southern border as if that's something that she could just fix overnight. And then, of course, when she doesn't, then she's criticized for that. But this week, we got this report saying that at least three of her staffers are leaving and they are saying that she has just around the clock criticism. They're painting this picture, which, of course, should be noted that these reports are coming out with those good old anonymous sources. But the reports that are coming out about her staffers leaving are saying that, you know, they would make her files for her to read, to know what was going on each day. They would give her these briefings and she wouldn't read them. And then she would come back and be mad when she wasn't properly prepared. So they're painting a picture not only of someone who is not able to fulfill her job, but at the same time, they're painting this picture of someone who is hard to work with, who they don't want to be around, and they really don't want to be the next Democratic nominee to run for the president of the United States. And so I think it's interesting that we're kind of seeing this building around Kamala Harris, whether, you know, it is something that should be in her corner or not. It is one of those things, certainly, where we are watching this building. And it also makes you wonder, what does the DNC have planned? What is their backup plan here? I mean, that's at least what I'm wondering. Yes. Uh, I mean, we must all hope uh, America and the world therefore, uh, that Joe Biden hangs on in there until the end of his term. But, uh, you know, if I was a betting man, I kind of am on politics, I really wouldn't put any money at all on him lasting until 2024. As I look at him and observe his cognitive decline, to put it politely, I would say that Kamala Harris will be the president of the Western world uh, sooner rather than later. And that's a real problem if what they say about her is even half true. Oh, absolutely. It is frightening. And, you know, I know that you set it up perfectly in your monologue for the show, and I do want to commend you on that. I hope that if people are tuning in right now, that they go back and that they watch your monologue at the beginning of the Thank show, you. because you laid out every possible conflict that the U.S. is looking at right now. And so many people, when they hear about rising tensions with Russia, with China, with Iran, they just kind of either shrug it off or they look at it and they say, yes, the U.S. should be taking more action. They should be doing more. And they buy into that fear-based propaganda. But when you look at someone like Joe Biden, who doesn't seem like he has anything together at the moment, or you look at someone like Kamala Harris, who seems like she is more than ready to start a war, to start a conflict that the U.S. can't get out of, it should make every single American incredibly concerned that we're in a situation where the top people in control of this country, and then you, of course, look at the rest of Joe Biden's cabinet, and they're also ready and willing to go to war with any number of these countries. And I mean, it really raises the question, have we not learned anything over the last 20 years of all that we've gone through, of all of the ridiculous gross failures that we've seen in the Middle East? Have we not learned anything? In a lot of ways, it doesn't really feel like we have. And I think that's one of the most concerning things going into the next presidential election, finishing out this presidential term, is that it seems like the people in power are more war hungry than ever, when in reality, they should be stepping back and saying, hey, let's let's focus on the U.S. for a change. Yeah, which is what one thought might happen after the humiliating debacle 
in Afghanistan. But the only thing uh, that we've learned is that we've learned nothing. Uh, Rachel Blevins, as always, thank you very much, Taiwan, for joining us. 28% see Iran, 23%. You can now uh, give me uh, your vote. Now, it's been a busy week for the royals. It turns out that Prince Andrew has flown at least four times on the so-called Lolita Express of Jeffrey Epstein, a plane that was used, it is now common currency, to traffic children from one part of the United States to other parts of the United States, and in the case of uh, Jufre to London, where she was prevailed upon, according to her testimony, to sleep with Prince Andrew. She didn't want to, she was prevailed upon to do so. One of the trips, at least, uh, that Prince Andrew took on the airplane uh, was to the island in the Caribbean, owned by Epstein, at which, by common currency, sexual offences against children regularly took place. All of these flight logs and so on are tumbling out of the prosecution of Ghislaine Maxwell in her trial in New York. But it's not just Prince Andrew. The long suppurating sore of Princess Meghan and Prince Harry continues to bleed at the British royal family. And then there's the Duke of Edinburgh, the late Prince Philip, whose death at the age of 99 required him to make a will. But unlike every other family in the entire country, that will is a secret. It's a secret for a reason. And our next guest knows that reason better than almost anybody on the planet. Because not only is he a former a parliamentary colleague of mine, he's a privy councillor, which means that he's actually one of, admittedly, a large number of advisors to the Queen. He's a parliamentarian who did everything he could to open the royal family and its business to proper transparency, but he's the author of the very best book on the subject, on the market. Still, he'll tell us about it. He is, of course, the Right Honourable Norman Baker. Norman, welcome back uh, to the show. Uh, I, everything that happens in royal developments must be driving people to your bookshelf, your, uh, your, your book on the shelves of all good uh, uh, booksellers, because it's one damn thing after another, isn't it? Uh, yes, uh, I have to say that uh, Prince Andrew, Prince Charles, Harry and Meghan are my uh, unpaid uh, sales advisors who are out there marketing my book for me. I should say one thing after another. I should say, by the way, if you don't mind me inserting this, that the uh, issue about flat logs may have been used in this week's trial, but actually was in my book. Uh, we've got flat logs demonstrating that Andrew was in the same flight as uh, 
Virginia Roberts, as she was at the time. So, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the yet, tidal wave and, of sleeve and, and, lapping at the door. Yeah, and yet she claimed, uh, he claimed that he'd never heard of her. Uh, well, you'd never heard of her in that photograph apparently didn't exist, the one with his arm round her. So, um, you know, these things are a habit of catching up with the royals in due course. And uh, I think, uh, as I said, a tidal wave of sleaze is lapping at their door very firmly now. Uh, we've been interested, and you didn't mention this, but of course, the other thing with, with Charles and his uh, selling of honours, um, which I think is uh, also going to come, come to fruition now because uh, Harry in, in, in the Sunday Times today has made it plain that he cut his ties with this particular individual that uh, Charles was offering an honour to. Uh, and yet it was after that that Charles continued to uh, engage with him. So Harry has thrown his dad under the bus as far as that's concerned. Well, uh, not, for the, not for the first time and not for the last one, presumed. No, <laughs> that's right. And you mentioned Prince Philip. Well, his will has been sealed, according to um, the Attorney General and the judges. The Attorney General represents the public interest, allegedly. He was the only person not from the royal family or representing the royal family, uh, this uh, secret hearing which took place, secret hearing, uh, to, to seal the will. And why was the will sealed? To uphold the dignity of the Crown. Well, my view, George, is the dignity of the Crown is upheld by not behaving in an undignified manner. Um, uh, the real reason for uh, keeping the will closed, of course, is because uh, royal wills, if they were open, would demonstrate the enormous amount of money which they have accumulated from the public purse, and they want to keep that secret. How much do you reckon Prince Philip will have left? Oh, he'll have left uh, at least 30, 40, 50 million, probably more. And bear in mind, he was born in, a, in an orange basket on a table in Greece. All, and he was, he was a pauper when he married into the royal family. All the money he's secured since 1947 has been secured from us, from the public purse. And I really wonder whether it's appropriate for hardworking people in this country to be making multi-millionaires or billionaires, in the Queen's case, out of our taxes. Is the Queen a billionaire? Oh, she's more than a billionaire. Absolutely more than a billionaire. Look, I mean, if you just take one example from, I think I'm quoting the Daily Mail, which is hardly the most left-wing newspaper. Back in about 2000, uh, they estimated that one tax exemption alone had probably given the Queen £800 million windfall. She was exempted from dividend tax on investments by Winston Churchill when she took the throne up in 1952. She paid no tax, income tax, for 40 years until 1992 when a scandal at that point with Diana and Charles forced, to, forced them to uh, accommodate the public's wishes. So she had decades of freedom from taxes. Uh, nobody else had that in the country uh, outside the royal family. And in that time, she accumulated well over a billion in tax she would have paid, let alone everything else she has. Now, we wish her long life, uh, but all things must pass. And when she passes, her will will be secret too. And therefore, more than a billion, by your account, uh, more than a billion pounds uh, will be uh, bequeathed to, presumably, her children. Yes, presumably, her children. Uh, it will be, uh, as you say, a secret will. It won't take account of all the... Uh, embarrassing amounts of money they've accumulated. Let me just give you one example, one more example, George. You may remember that Buckingham Palace has had to be refurbished, allegedly. We were told in 2007 by the palace it would require £1 million to refurbish it. Uh, we were told in 2008 that the backlog for all the royal palaces, and they've got plenty of buildings, 
would come to between 32 million and 55 million. And then we're now being faced with a bill of 359 million pounds for Buckingham Palace refurbishment. Meanwhile, it's open to the public and they're paying billions of millions of pounds in income from ticket sales. And you know about the ticket sales? The palace says that's a matter for the queen, it's her money. So the money that comes in is hers, the money that's spent on the palace is ours. And you know what? That, that's, that brings up an old phrase, which I, I, I love, which is that we have in this country a national debt and a royal mint. <laughs> that's very good. Um, tell us, uh, where, where can people get your book? What's it called? It's called, and what do you do? Which is what the Queen asks you, of course, if you meet her. Um, what the Royal Family doesn't want you to know. It's available from Bite Back, from all good bookshops, no doubt some bad bookshops as well, <laughs> and available from Amazon uh, and uh, online and everywhere else. And it's also an audio book. And uh, it's selling very well. And thank you very much to uh, Charles, Harry, Megham, and Andrew for promoting it for me. <laughs> I'm a great uh, admirer of it myself. Right Honourable Norman Baker, thanks for uh, joining us. Timothy is in Edinburgh. Hello. Um, sorry, I'm a bit flustered, a bit, I'm a bit nervous, though. Take your um, time. It, thank you. So, um, I wanted to talk about uh, Ukraine and the situation there, because um, I myself, it's like I'm British, Russian, and also German, but um, the point is it's uh, kind of a terrifying prospect um, of a war. Well, that's a terrifying prospect in any case, but in my situation, and it's not a unique one, that's the thing, it's not a unique situation where um, people are kind of being pitted against their own brothers, it seems. Like, for example, if there was a war announced in the Ukraine, and it would be like, well, okay, um, it's like you, you choose to um, kill either the people that you've been living with for your um well, um, for your life, so I've grew up in Britain, or um, you're going to have to kill, um, well, well, my other brothers, because, for example, I mean, I do go to Russia, and I do have family there, and I don't, I don't want to necessarily um, be paid against one or the other, and I don't want to choose sides. And Who does? Who in their right mind in Britain wants to have a war with Russia? Mm, precisely. I, I just don't understand it. I, I don't see... I don't see what the gain would be. And again, I speak from a place of ignorance. I really don't understand much what is happening in the Ukraine. I really, I really should learn about it. Well, the, the, the thing you need to know is that on this day, uh, it is said by the leader of the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine that President Putin has agreed to give all of them Russian citizenship. Mm. Number two, mm. uh, the Ukrainian government uh, has asked Britain, the US and NATO all to send armed forces in a fighting capacity uh, to Ukraine. And President Putin has said that would be a red line. Yeah. Now, if that's not a dangerous constellation of facts <laughs> emerging in one day, I can't think what would be. Sorry, we're out of time, Timothy. Uh, we've got a, a legend on the line. And all must be cleared, all decks must be cleared to hear from the one and only Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Nice. It's a good show. Thank you. Um, on this day also, 18 years ago, Nelson Mandela died. Yeah. And did, oh, no, no, you probably do know this, but... Yeah, I mentioned President, it earlier, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. did you? Yeah. Well, President de Klerk, um in 1993 got rid of the... Um, South African nuclear weapons, and I think that led to this, what they call the African nuclear free zone. But he did say to Kirk that he hoped that all the nuclear countries, the whole eight of them, they'd um, 
eliminate over time their weapons. And as you were saying about Iran and and Israel, and if we do have a severe military warfare, you know, coming up, um, there's no progress there, is there, George? Um, no, the opposite. Uh, Britain is uh, renewing its yeah. uh, its nuclear strike force and uh, and increasing its number and its firepower. Uh, whilst telling other people that they cannot have uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, the, the Americans withdrew from the INF, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. They have not made a new treaty. Uh, there's only one standing treaty now between uh, the, what is now Russia and the United States, and that is strategic nuclear weapons. But there's no treaty now stopping them deploying battlefield nuclear weapons or intermediate-range uh, yeah. nuclear weapons. So I mean, we've gone backwards, a big, big way backwards. We do, we do. And, and, and I mean, really, it's very... I can't understand it. I think de Klerk actually was quite a help with Mandela in his way to getting rid of apartheid. And he did say that he hoped that over time, you know, there's France, Russia, China, Pakistan, India, Israel, they've all got the nuclear weapons. And... Um, it ain't making us any much safer, is well, it? Well, not at all. Uh, China, uh, the Chinese foreign minister put it best, I think, when he said, we know, of course, uh, that the United States could destroy China 10 times over. We are, on the other hand, quite content that we have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the United States only once. That's how serious these stakes are. So I'm grateful for you, uh, Norma, uh, bringing okay. this up at the end of the show. It's an important thought that you've planted uh, that should accompany people to bed this evening after they've finished listening to this show. Because don't be surprised if you wake up tomorrow or next week or next month or in a few months' time to discover that we, a nuclear power, are at war with an even bigger nuclear power. Don't be surprised by that at all. It's been marvelous for me. Hope it was for you. If so, come back next week, same time. Downloads of the podcast, huge numbers, are downloading this week's highlights in the UK and in the US, but also in countries like Japan, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, you probably get executed for that. Korea, Switzerland, the UAE, and Hong Kong in China. Thank you for all the great reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and including this one. In British politics, Mr. Galloway stands as the last bastion of sense. Like a fine wine, he gets better with age. I have been a fan of his since 2002. I would recommend anyone to listen to him. The best podcast around. Thank you very much indeed. That was a touching testimony. Thank you so much. If you do listen, give a five-star review. Why don't you? You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.